This is a bit of a special class for us. This first of the new year, we introduce what are called the Three Refuges, which is really kind of the ground of Buddhist spiritual practice, and have a ceremony or a ritual that we'll end with tonight, and we do it once a year. And just so you know, it's you could be of any religious faith or persuasion, and this is a a really a, a kind of a living ritual to come home to really what you most value. So I think you'll find it that way. How many of you made New Year's aspirations? Can I just see? Wow! <laughs> Great! We just had a retreat, a uh, five-day retreat IMCW holds it each year and we did some deep reflecting on aspiration and I talked to some people about what their aspirations were and I do this a lot each year and it generally the theme is very much gravitates around the heart usually of uh, a quality of I want to be kinder and I want that kindness to include moi like letting go of some judgments and not How many of you had something in that realm of just being, lightening up a little on yourself? I did. (laughs) I mean, definitely there's a hand, we also have the ones about cleaning the basement and losing weight and all that, but it's... (laughs) It's very much part of the, the bodhisattva path, the path of awakening, to have this intention to awaken our hearts in a way that's really inclusive that doesn't push out any part of our own being or anyone else. And yet, as we know, and I frame it this way a lot, that the spiritual path is really one of remembering and then forgetting, and then remembering again, and then forgetting. And in the forgetting, we get small and we get tight, and basically we're thinking something's wrong with me or something's wrong with someone else. And so I've described, for those of you that have been here, the term, the big squeeze, which I like a lot because it really says that in some way each of us, and we wouldn't be here if this wasn't true, intuits a kind of purity or innocence of heart that's inside us, that we have that, that we want to love and be loved, and there's a goodness there. And we intuit an awareness, a kind of quality of awakeness that's really very essence. And we also are aware that pretty much every day we get trapped in a conditioning, I call a trance, where our sense of who we are shrinks and we get reactive. The circumstances of the culture definitely are conducive to it, where, we're, where we get speedy and judgmental and we disconnect from our bodies and we're not so kind we might behave well, but our hearts are pretty self-focused. Our energy is very much about how I can get more what I want or how I can get more comfortable. And when I talk about self-centeredness, I'm not talking about self-care, I'm talking about a kind of fixation or obsession with self. I shared at the retreat one of my favorite descriptions of this from Pema Chodron, I'll say it again here, Being preoccupied with our self-image is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wildflowers with a black hood over our heads. 
It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. So what we call selfing, this kind of fixation on me and what I need and what I want, isn't fun. We don't feel good from it. We kind of know that. And yet there's this universal tendency, and we all have it, to have a perception of that there's a self in here and a world out there and that something's not okay or something's missing and we're constantly driven to kind of always on our way to getting a little more of what will make us feel better and getting rid of what's bothering us. And when that happens, in those moments that we're on our way, we're forgetting what most matters to us. We're forgetting the way that we cherish connection and intimacy and we're forgetting a sense of the wonder of the beauty that's here. We're forgetting the valuing of presence, of really being here for this life, not on our way to something else. So we're forgetting our aspiration, basically. I think Joseph Campbell said it's like putting the ladder up against the wall, climbing up and realizing you had it up against the wrong wall, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And then one of my favorite cartoons is of this graveyard and you see a thought bubble coming up from underground and the thought bubble says, I think I know what I want to do with my life. (laughs) And the caption underneath is, Ed pushes the late bloomer envelope to surprising new limits, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So in the Buddhist teachings, we have the capacity to recognize the self-fixation, to recognize the grasping and the avoiding, and in that recognizing, to wake up to a larger quality of presence and being. And so in daily life, and we certainly find this at retreat, the big question really is, what helps us to remember? What helps us to notice we've been stuck? There's no shame in it. I mean, every one of us is rigged to get caught up in this trance of on my way, trying to figure out, trying to avoid. So what helps us remember? Because that's the key thing. That's really the trick on every path. Like, really, what? Oh, yeah. I don't want to be waylaid for the day or for the decade. I want to remember what matters. So in Buddhism, the gateways to remembering are described as a triple gem, or three refuges, three ways of offering our attention and presence that can help us come back home to this awakeness and love that really is our nature. And I just want to say they're archetypal, so I'll be talking in terms of Buddhism tonight, but these three gateways, you can find them in every tradition, every tradition. And I'm going to do them in a different order than they're classically done. The first, the first I'll cover is the gateway of Dharma, which means the path or the truth. And taking refuge in the Dharma, this gateway of remembering, is the gateway of really what we're practicing here, which is come home to what's happening in this moment entrust yourself to this moment's experience. So that's one gateway. The second refuge we'll cover is Sangha, which is the gateway of realizing the love in relationship, 
that if we can remember the love between us in that moment of remembering there's homecoming and then the third gateway is the gateway of Buddha nature which is remembering the actual awareness the presence that's here in every moment I like to begin talking about each of the refuges with the language of false refuge and those of you that have come on Wednesdays know I try to, try to bring it in as often as I can because in order to take true refuge that means refuge in truth in order to remember we have to kind of catch on to the ways our habits of forgetting like how do we leave and we all have our own kind of strategies for leaving we all have our own false refuges but there's some common ones so I'll just briefly name some of the common ones that take us away from presence and they're based on a misunderstanding we have this a kind of if-only mind where we experience each one of us if we really stop can sense that there's a kind of restlessness a kind of angst, a kind of fear that's often there and we're chronically trying to find a way to relieve it all of us are doing that and we have this kind of if only mind that if only and then fill in the blank if only I healed this physical problem or if only I lost weight or if only this job situation could work out and I could get rid of a few colleagues that really aren't so cooperative or if only I found the right mate we usually have one or two or three if onlys that are really affecting things that are kind of having us wait to be really here to have things work out so we have our false refuges ways we chase after things to feel better a few weeks ago before I came to Wednesday night class I went to a hairdresser I try to fit in things and I so I planned it just right timing wise and as it is, happens there were a handful of us sitting around a table waiting, waiting, waiting um, everything was running behind and most everybody was reading the magazines that are there Glamour and you know all the other magazines and I wasn't reading a magazine but nor was I meditating on the eternal timeless moment I was kind of figuring out how late am I going to be for Wednesday night class planning, worrying, planning, worrying but one woman slammed down her magazine and she said I can't believe it I just read the greatest story and she talked about how in this article they've proven that shopping supports longevity (laughs) so listen up ladies (laughs) okay so she got the attention of a bunch of us so she went on she goes it comes down to dopamine it's all about dopamine she goes that with, when you shop you get this anticipation, eager excitement and that gives you more dopamine about what you're going to find that's going to then make you look better or feel better she said it also supports improved immune functioning because <laughs> shopping makes you feel better about yourself and that, you know, and she went on anyway, people started taking out their notepads, you know <laughs> of course, I was thinking in my mind I'd rather die than shop because it doesn't do dopamine for me it has other effects, but we all have our favorite strategies but I'll just name a few that are really common which is we stay busy that's a false refuge that's one way we leave that kind of angsty feeling I remember some years ago 
I realized that when people would comment on what a busy person I was, I had a kind of little bit of a flush of pride about it. Like in some way, busyness meant important, worthwhile, special, whatever. And it became really an interesting inquiry that in some way, when I wasn't busy, that I could tap into some sense of, oh, I'm not doing enough, I'm not okay. We're very driven to be busy. We take refuge in holding on to pleasantness, as, as many of you know. We just keep on trying to rev up the, the pleasures through food, through drugs. Some of you might remember this one, that sleep is a poor man's nirvana. <laughs> that was great. And caffeine. I went to a conference on addiction and one of the posters had two homeless men on a park bench. One of them was saying, I used to be the CEO of a multinational. I had three homes and a private jet. Then I switched to decaf. (laughs) (laughs) So we have our our strategies, you know, looking good. It's amazing how many moments when we're with others we're trying to control how the other will experience us. That's a false refuge. We take refuge in obsessive thinking. We take refuge in blaming, because when we blame it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves or more in control. And the biggest is we take refuge in constantly telling ourselves stories about ourselves, what's wrong with us, what's right with us, how we need to look or act or feel to be okay. So this inner dialogue keeps telling us who we are. And what would happen if we stopped the inner dialogue? We wouldn't know, we'd get to that uneasiness, so we take refuge in that. The point is that in any moment, and this isn't to judge ourselves, that we're doing false refuge of whether it's food or shopping or proving ourselves or staying busy, in those moments we're fueling the trance. In those moments we're staying hooked in a story of a small self and we're not able to realize the love and that luminosity, that presence, that's really our birthright. So we start practicing how do we really turn towards true refuge? How do we, how do we remember? And so we begin with the refuge in Dharma, which, as I mentioned, is really practicing paying attention to what's right here. And you might sense right this moment, and I like to pause. Just close your eyes and pause to take refuge in the Dharma is to stop pursuing thoughts, stop chasing after anything, stop resisting. It's a kind of stopping and letting go into what's here. Zen Master Ryokan says, if you want to know the Buddhist law, drift east, drift west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. entrusting yourself to the waves. Now, entrusting ourselves to the waves 
doesn't mean we don't die. It means that this moment we live it fully. And we can't live our lives fully if we're trying to manage what's beyond our control. So taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the truth of what's here. Now if you want to open your eyes for a moment, you can. We're going to practice a little with this, but just to say that the challenge is when one, what is here feels difficult, we have a deep reflex to, again, take false refuge, to try to get away. So the training in refuge in the Dharma I think of often as a training in learning to stay. You know, we, we're so, so wired to, whether it's to move our body when we're a little uncomfortable or move our mind to try to figure something out or leave a marriage or leave a job, or, we're trained to leave. And the radical, the revolutionary practice is stay. Just let go into what's right here. And the training begins with letting go of the story we're telling in a given moment. This is the crux of all meditation training, is can you notice there's a story going on and come into the actuality of this moment in the body the two questions, what is happening right here? What is happening? And ask, you can just ask that and see what happens. What is happening inside me right now? And can I totally let this be as it is? American monk Ajahn Sumedho has just the mantra, it's like this. There's other mantras that are helpful when you take refuge in the Dharma. Sometimes it can be this too. You can try that one out, this too. So during the uh, retreat that we just had on the second day of the retreat, I woke up, I guess it was about quarter to six, and very soon had a pretty dramatic back spasm. And it was so dramatic that I spent the entire day completely immobilized. So it meant I was missing one day of a short retreat. It set off all sorts of reactivity. I mean, I took false refuge in the thoughts of madly trying to plan, oh, how am I going to take care of this quickly enough to get back into action. I took refuge into blaming myself. Okay, what did I do wrong to make this happen? I got caught in the kind of dukkha or um, suffering of, I'm not worthy because I'm not doing what I was supposed to be doing. I'm letting people down. And what I kept discovering, you know, it was like I got to really be on retreat, (laughs) at retreat, (laughs) practicing, was that the moments I was suffering was when I was playing the stories and believing them. And the moments that I could say, okay, this is another story about what's going to happen or what shouldn't be happening, because that's the basic story, it's not supposed to be like this, check it out. But we have a storyline saying something's wrong, it shouldn't be like this. When I could recognize the story and then just nail my attention right into just what's happening here, Okay, there was unpleasant sensations, but that's not suffering. We can do unpleasant sensations. The suffering was the meanings I was making out of things. 
So the practice with refuge in the Dharma for me was noticing the stories of what I was afraid was going to happen, what I felt bad about was going to happen, back right here. This sensation, this breath, this mood in the heart. I saw it again and again with, uh, we do interviews with the students at retreats and again and again the practice was the same that we all would run into where the conditioning grabbed us where in some way we were caught in fear or in grief or in obsession or whatever and it was the same way of taking refuge we call it rain sometimes just recognizing and allowing what's happening R-A and then the I, get intimate with it instead of the story just feel the sensations, feel the fear, feel the sadness. And in the moments that instead of believing the story that something's wrong, there's a real intimacy. Oh, this sensation, this feeling. In that intimacy and presence there's a compassion and there's space. There's a kind of a shift. This is the core of the teachings. There's a shift in a sense of identity. For me, instead of the oppressed self that once again was having yet another bodily affliction, and those of you that have been around know I have like a drama of one after another, instead of that storyline of oppressed self, in some way insufficient self, or our self that's being deprived, the presence with just the actuality opened up to, okay, just a kind of tender awareness. And I saw it over and over again, Really, you can see it after a few days. When you come to a retreat, the difference between that and a maybe 45-minute sit is that the power of your attention is there's more of a kind of quality of steadiness and depth. So the rain goes deeper, the intimacy goes deeper, and that identity shift is more clear from the kind of victim or oppressed person to the awareness. So let's practice a little. We'll take refuge in Dharma together. So again, Dharma means truth. It's the path. And in the most basic way, it's the actuality of this moment-to-moment experience. So in this pause... letting go of ideas, thoughts of the future, of the past. And just let yourself rest your heart in what is right here. Perhaps this inflow and outflow of the breath. Listening to the sounds that are here. listening and feeling the life of the body. Just relax and feel the aliveness.
listening to and feeling the whole moment. Refuge in the Dharma is this incredible gift of radical presence with exactly what's here. Traditionally, the word sangha means spiritual community and traditionally it referred to the community of monks and nuns in the Buddha's time. It broadens out to all those that are awakening, which is really all of life. But if we go back to the Buddha's time, the, the most traditional verse on sangha was when uh, the Buddha's closest disciple and actually his cousin, Ananda, asked to the Buddha, aren't good friends half of this holy life? And the Buddha, and this is the way he did things, he said, not so, Ananda, not so. He said, good friends are the whole of this holy life. Now that is a big statement, the whole of this holy life. And so what does that mean? You know? I like the way Thich Nhat Hanh said it, that he said, in the West, the Buddha is the Sangha, that we discover the truth of who we are in experiencing loving relationship. That we really deeply let go of that story of separateness. It's the bind, that's, that's the trance that, this, that we're in these like solo entities kind of maneuvering around and in a moment of really feeling connection and love. And we each have an intuition of this. When there's intimacy, that story starts to kind of dissolve around the edges and there's more of a field, there's more of a space which is what we are, a tender space. So taking refuge in the Sangha means giving our attention and our lives to realizing connection with each other. Not to postpone that, to do it consciously and intentionally. We can do that in our spiritual communities and there's a growing sense of Sangha with the meditation community here. Many people are in what are called spiritual friends or KM groups and those of you that haven't heard about them we can get you more information, small groups that meet every other week and there's a real intimacy that arises when you have a shared intention to wake up and how to bring these practices to waking up. And then you can see how Sangha, that sense of loving presence, that field, arises at a retreat. We just did these five days on silence. And initially people go on silence and they feel like they're in their own bubble and there's a sense of separateness. 
But over time, as we get quiet and there's that sensitivity, the sense of connection grows and we end it with these small circles of people sharing their experience. And I had so many people tell me that the level of intimacy from being in this field of awakeness and quietness and then sharing from that was profound, was hard to put into words. We grow in our sense of Sangha when we serve together when we work together, those people that have, have volunteered or gotten involved with serving this community, that there's a, there's a bond that develops that's really beautiful. And then in a broader way, it can be with anyone in our life where we have the intention to be awake and present, they are our Sangha. And in any moment where we get quiet and we really listen and we put down our story and we let ourselves take in who's here, and we look and see. In that moment we're taking refuge in Sangha. And any moment that we are in our bodies and our hearts and we express that to another, we're taking refuge in Sangha. I think one of the most powerful ways that refuge in Sangha comes alive is when we become mirrors for each other's goodness. And this is when the Buddha said, it's the whole of this holy life. He understood that the given is that we forget. We forget who we are. We forget our wisdom. We forget the love that's here. And it's when another being mirrors that, reminds us of who we are, that it helps us come back home again. I read a story today in the paper that really uh, touched me as an example, beautiful example of the power of Sangha. Some of you might have read it also. And it was about Ann Byler, who's Auntie Ann's pretzels. How many of you saw that article? Good. Her personal story is very compelling. Amish, uh, and she's, she's just a book coming out called A Twist of Faith. She was um, married at 19 and she and her husband joined an evangelical Christian church and they ended up following their pastor out to East Texas to help him build the church. Um, they had a infant daughter who died and it was a horrific, um, wrenching experience for both of them and there was a huge amount of grief. And so a little bit after that she went to the pastor for counsel and he seduced her. And for the next six years she was kind of caught in this very abusive, uh, predatory relationship with the pastor of her church. Then she finally told her husband, and this is the part that really, really affected me. So I want to read it to you. Her husband's name's Jonah's, and she says, The look in Jonah's eyes was unbearable, she recalls. She said, I'm really sorry and I'm a very sorry person. Then she went off to work after confessing. Jonas wasn't there when she got home, but eventually she heard his little truck in the driveway. He came into the kitchen. We just stood there side by side, not touching, and he said, Honey, I don't have a whole lot I want to talk about. I just want you to promise me one thing. I want you to be happy so promise me you won't leave me in the middle of the night with a note on the dresser. If you need to leave, we'll plan it together. I'll help you pack your bags, help you find a place to live. 
but you have to take the girls. It was the last bit that broke through to her, Anne remembers, penetrated her own wall of self-loathing. She said, I felt overcome by the fact that he thought I was good enough mom to take the kids with me, she says, crying hard at the memory. He thought I was a good enough mom to take the kids with me. Usually those people that mirror our goodness are not people that have just been really hit hard by something we've done. That's a real uh, kind of a a real noble spirit that can pull that off. But there's something about when we are caught in self-loathing, when another can remind us it can be the way back home, that can be refuge in Sangha. And for her to have her husband see the realness of her humanity, that she had in some ways betrayed their trust, that's being a real human, you know, she, she fumbled she got caught, and see through that to her goodness, you're a good mom, and be able to mirror that, that's a powerful example of the healing that that can happen in Sangha. The poet Haviz says this, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. We need to feel the light of our connection with each other and our love with each other. Otherwise we get caught in the fearfulness and the isolation of selfhood. So we'll do a reflection on Sangha, a little taste. And again, as you did before, sit in a way that's comfortable. These are very short reflections. Refuge in Sangha basically is refuge in the love that enlarges us. Refuge in Sangha gives a kind of fundamental shift in identity. It opens us up out of a sense of separateness, unworthiness, endangerment. And in this reflection, Just begin by feeling your breath and feeling your body. And feeling your heart. And bring to mind one person who you feel love with, you feel connection with and ideally an uncomplicated relationship, although there often aren't too many of those. And it might be that you bring to mind your dog. That's sometimes a very simple place of love and belonging. Or it might be a person that's no longer alive. But some being that lets you know a feeling of connection and see this being's eyes and face when they're appreciating you. 
you might hear their voice saying your name and saying, I love you, are in some way behaving in a way that lets you know that they care about you. and sense your experience of that being's goodness, the way they show love, their brightness, humor. See that being happy. that being feeling loved by you. And just sense the quality of togetherness, the love, the field that's between you. So if you just let go any of any image or vision or sense of the other, just the feeling tone, the visceral sense of loving, of connection. And in that space of heart, bring in another Sangha member, someone else who's part of the web, that lets you know connection and just let that being be in your heart. And in these next few moments, just invite in whoever comes to mind that you sense as part of your natural Sangha And it can be people that you know close up. And it can also be those that you might not know so well, but you feel that sense of kindredness with. take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in the love, in this field of loving. Okay, last one. So refuge in the Dharma, in the actual changing moment-to-moment experience, in the Sangha, that love and relationship that we can experience. Refuge in the Buddha is refuge directly in the awareness, our embodied expression of awareness, that luminous wakefulness that's really our nature. And there are two main gateways to refuge in the Buddha. And one gateway is to 
bring to mind some embodiment of Buddha nature, some being that just expresses that love and that freedom. And it could be the Buddha or the Bodhisattva of compassion, could be Jesus or could be Great Spirit or one of the, any of the um, living beings that we feel are very awakened, Dalai Lama. So it's by bringing to mind a being that expresses it that that reconnects us and takes us home. We can also take refuge directly in our own Buddha nature. And that is really sensing the presence that's right here and just being it, inhabiting it. Now, some years ago, I was at a retreat and one of the teachers said, so, how many here actually believe that Buddha nature is what you are? It's living through you. And I remember in my own mind, I went, sure, well, sometimes. (laughs) You know, it was kind of, yeah, mm." And when we're honest, much of the time we're living in a story of a self and Buddha nature is an idea or, you know, the idea of the luminosity of God or the divine shining through us, it's just an idea. And our really sense of ourself is kind of grumpy and small and self-centered and not very um, shining. You know how Wei Wu Wai, one of the poets, puts it, he says, 98% of what you do is for yourself and there isn't one. So So the teachings are that these patterns of thoughts and feelings and sensations and stories are like waves in the ocean and there's this kind of identification or fixation where we take ourselves to be a cluster of waves and forget our oceanness, forget our belonging to the whole. And that's the suffering. And so the inquiry really is imagine how your life would change if every day, many moments a day, there was a kind of remembering of, okay, so these are stories and there's a whole lot of activity going and the source is awareness. There's presence here. That everything we long for is already here in the presence, in the radiance that's here right now. So what I'd like to do is a brief reflection on really looking back into awareness and sensing this Buddha nature that's here, right in this moment. And again, if you haven't already, just sit up a little taller and just let your attention go inward. This will be the last of these reflections during the talk and then we'll be doing our ritual. pausing again as you've been doing to explore refuge in Buddha nature by first listening and feeling what's here. We start by refuge in the Dharma, just arriving some. And if there's a being that comes to mind naturally that really expresses the beauty of Buddha nature, a being that feels very luminous to you, wise, compassionate, you might invoke that being's presence. It's fine if there isn't one, but if that is a natural pathway for you, 
to invite in the presence of the Buddha or Kuan Yin, Great Spirit. For some there's a sense of a kind of luminous loving field that can surround you. You can invite that. There can be a heart's prayer. May the love, the awareness, the wisdom that's here be felt and experienced. May it surround me. You can try that. To let yourself be bathed in, held in that light, that love. Continuing to notice the experience of this moment, the sounds and sensations. You can also inquire who or what is aware of all this? Who am I? Turning the awareness to look into awareness itself. Who's here? And then just let go. Let go and be the awakeness. Be the openness. Be the silence that's listening. The stillness that's aware of sensation. Who is aware? Just turn and look. And then let go into the mystery that can't be named but can be inhabited. The Tibetans say that this pure awareness is closer than we can imagine. the presence that's right here. It's more profound beyond any thought, this presence. It's easier to experience because it's what we're made of, it's our source. We just relax back. And it's more wondrous. To let go into the mystery is to celebrate this infinitely creative universe. When we take refuge in this Buddha nature, when we inhabit this presence, we can begin to sense that everyone we meet looking through those eyes is the same radiance that's peering through our eyes, that the same heart and tenderness is living 
through each being. We naturally take refuge in Sangha, this oneness. Ultimately, every refuge leads to the others. stay. Now, for this ceremony, which as you know is, is actually very brief, but it's a chance for you to honor your own path and really dedicate your um, self, your year, your life to deepening on the path. It's a beautiful uh, support for that. And in Buddhist Asia and Hindu countries, the thread which you have, the red thread is a symbol of blessing. And it's actually considered to be a thread from the robe of monks. What you'll end up doing is having this thread as, as a bracelet or as a necklace. And it's been described sometimes that in, then once you're wearing this red thread from the robe of a monk, that you're actually going into the marketplace in drag. (laughs) Except for you're remembering what your true home is. So I'd like to invite you to consider that some of you might choose not to wear it. I have friends that have uh, these refuge threads that they've been wearing for 15 years. They'll get sometimes do another ceremony and then they keep them on their altar. But you can wear them for quite a while but you can use them as a real vehicle for remembering. This symbol, our blessing, is a way of remembering what you really want to come home to. So that's just a kind of background. They're also called protection cords. And when one teacher, Chogyam Trungpa, was asked, well, what do they protect you from? His response was, yourself, of course. It's really what he's talking about is protecting you from getting lost in the trance of self, which we all do, and we all have a longing to be awake from. So what we'll do is we'll reflect together on these cords, um, wanting to ask you to hold one end with with one hand and one end with another, and so that they just kind of drape a little between the hands. And if you'd like to close your eyes, we're going to reflect on each refuge. And with each refuge, you're going to be tying a knot into this cord. So pause again so that you can really bring a wholehearted presence. You can infuse this meditation with your heart. The first refuge that we will begin with, refuge in the Dharma, is really refuge in this living present moment, in all the practices and truths that bring us home to this aliveness, this vividness, this mystery of being here, really here. So when you take refuge in the Dharma, you're entrusting yourself to the life that's here. So the invitation is to mentally whisper the words, I take refuge in the Dharma, in sacred presence. 
and when you feel that sincerity of taking refuge in sacred presence that this is what matters please tie the first knot in your protection cord the second reflection I take refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in love that we sense that we value love because it's really what we are it's a homecoming to the truth and fullness of what we are so just reflecting you might whisper the words I take refuge in the Sangha and know that your intention and aspiration is to bring your whole being awake in loving relationship and when you feel that sense of fullness taking refuge in the Sangha in spiritual community in conscious relationship please tie the second knot and our third reflection I take refuge in the Buddha in Buddha nature is ultimately taking refuge in the awakeness the presence that's really our source taking refuge in Buddha nature is taking refuge in awareness so take a moment to feel presence and the cherishing of that to take refuge in Buddha nature is to take refuge in what we are and when you feel that sincerity to please tie the third knot into your cord and when you've done so you can choose whether you'd like your cord tied around your neck or around your arm if you want it around your neck then um, bring the string so that it's hanging from the back of your neck both ends hanging in front of you if you'd like it on your arm you can just have it dangling and this next part of the ceremony we stand up because it requires sangha in order to actually manifest it now officially your three knots means that your cord is infused, it's charged now fully (laughs) so you're going to be turning to one other person, find a a partner and you're going to take turns completing the circle of the knot tying the ends so that the cord is full first one person will tie the knot on the other in other words if your partner has it around their neck then you're going to tie a knot together so it's like a necklace and if it's around their wrist then you're going to tie it around their wrist so just help each other out mostly on silence if you can when you've completed this you can thank your partner namaste, bow, whatever and come sitting down and getting take your sheets and we'll chant together if you're seated you might again just take a moment to close your eyes and just arrive 
It's a really beautiful practice to continue to pause and be here. So you have sheets, we'll chant together again. The meaning of this is simply that we remember these gateways that we cherish. Join in as you'd like to. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama-sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama-sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama-sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami Dhamang saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutyampi buddham saranam gachami Dutyampi dhamang saranam gachami Dutyampi sangam saranam gachami Tatyampi buddham saranam gachami Tatyampi dhamang saranam gachami Dhatyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Namaste and blessings and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.